Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watts and I am not here with Callum Roper. Hello there everyone. And Bradley Allsop. Hi there folks. So after a couple of weeks of major protests uh, in the United States and also in the UK, uh, the uh, far right of the country, the opposition, the uh, the white supremacists have been uh, quite loud, but only on social media so far. But this weekend, we've actually seen them uh, come out and do what they promised to do, which was to come out and protect those precious statues of uh, racists and others of ambiguous character uh, against apparently no one, because, of course, uh, the Black Lives Matter protesters decided, do you know what? We're not going to have this fight. Um, And that was taken on police advice, ironically. Um, We're going to discuss today whether that was the the right approach. Uh, We're also going to discuss the impact of uh, COVID-19 on higher education uh, and also the government's complete failure so far to implement the test and trace regime that they have been promising for weeks now. Um, But returning to the main story, uh, obviously uh, London has been the focal point. There have been um, counter-processes so-called counter-protests, the media have have called them, uh, right-wing thugs and uh, white supremacists might be another term. Uh, They went to uh, London in their droves uh, to uh, protect monuments, and the response then was to uh, piss all over them, at least in the case of one uh, protester who decided to uh, take a leak uh, next to the memorial of Keith Palmer, one of the uh, police officers, the very brave police officer, in, in credit to him, um, who has tried to save people during a terrorist attack some years ago. Um, the uh, statue of Churchill, which has been the focus of a lot of uh, debate uh, and uh, annual vandalism uh, over the last few years, uh, had been boxed up. Uh, and that, so that was protected, as was the cenotaph. Um, and interestingly, uh, despite having spent most of the last week complaining about uh, Black Lives Matter protesters, left-wing protesters uh, attacking the police, uh, their immediate uh, action, it seems, was to bottle the police themselves to show us how it's done, perhaps. Um, and uh, it's... Uh, and, and obviously uh, to start fighting each other by some reports. So uh, a glorious, glorious demonstration of uh, the thuggery and stupidity of, of, uh, of the far right. Um, but some might also argue that um, sh- uh, it shouldn't have been allowed to happen, that if we remember, say, the Battle of Cable Street, uh, people should come out and stop the far right from marching. Um, After all, um, that is how you defeat fascism. You don't debate it, you punch it, as some people would argue. Um, What's your immediate reaction to that, Callum, um, in in terms of, uh, was that, do you think that was the right tactic this weekend? And do you think, what do you think the movement should be doing going forward? Well, I I think... um... 
looking at it, I think somebody on online described it quite well as a 4D chess move by the Black Lives Matter movement to not march. Um, I think, actually, I, I agree with the sentiment, Callum, that normally we should be standing up wherever we can to the fascists, to the racists. But in this case, I think we played a blinder in not marching against them. By letting them stand there, vandalise property, attack the police, and and just be all round just hor- horrible people, I think what that shows is is the difference between the two movements. Because at the moment, we're not just fighting the racists, but we're also fighting the media. We're also fighting Joe Bloggs in the public, who sees may not understand exactly what the Black Lives Matter movement is about. So by standing back and being peaceful and saying, we're not going to march against you, what that exposed was the horrific nature of the far right and exactly what we're up against in this country. So, you know, we see people attacking families in Hyde Park. We see people attacking black men in the street purely because they're black. We see them attacking the police. And then what that shows is that actually the movement there is the true danger to this country. They're the true thugs. They're the people that are causing disorder in the streets. And the vast majority of the Black Lives Matter movement is there to be peaceful and they just want a proper change. They don't just want to go and stand in Parliament Square, drink, sing football songs about Tommy Robinson and 10 German bombers in the air or whatever. That's what it's about for them. For us, it's about making a meaningful change. And in that calm collective manner, by standing back and letting the far right do that, I think we play the blinder. I think I think you're right. I think uh, the, there is a tendency, and we've seen it with this nonsense about you know removing episodes from TV shows and all this sort of stuff at the moment, um, which, which which no one has called for. No, no one has targeted Matt Lucas and David Williams um, in the recent set of protests. Uh, I, th- I think you know there's a wider debate around around comedy and what's acceptable and what isn't, um, but but. There's this sort of fuel of a, of a new culture war, or it's not even a new culture war, but a new phase to the culture war over the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think the risk of, of both marching at the same time is that the media narrative becomes about a, a war and it becomes about division, doesn't it? And it becomes about, oh, well, well there's there's Black Lives Matter on one side and then there's a, bu- there's a bunch of Nazis on the other side. And, and they're sort of giving them an equality in the media. And it's like, oh, there's, there's two equally legitimate sides and um, let's frame a, let's frame the, the, the narrative about the, those two kicking off at each other in London. Um, but actually, by Black Lives Matter not being there, the, the, the media can't really paint that narrative. They, they can't really make it about that. Um, and when Black Lives Matter does march again, hopefully the, the narrative can be more on what their demands are and, and, what, and what needs to change. So I, I, do, I think on that, in that sense as well, it, it, it's worked out quite well. And also, sort of what, what were the far-right protests in the other day? without a, without a, another protest them to sort of counter what, what were they actually there for what, what were their demands what what was the point of their protest mm. I think just just to sort of talk about where we've seen this before uh, we were saying before uh, we came on that the, to me this is the first time that the far right has been seriously challenged um, for several years, I, I would say since since sort of circa 2015, which was when um, David Cameron got elected with a majority Conservative government, 
Um, and uh, obviously with the promise to hold the Brexit referendum, which he then did the next year, which then happened. And then it, obviously there's a massive uptick of general racism and the uh, that sort of movement was valid, uh, validified by that. Um, and these Black Lives Matter protests are the, are the first time that's been challenged. So really we've got to... Um, this, this this is a whole new epoch, I think, of... of um, uh, challenging the far, far right, we need to think very carefully about our tactics. Um, just prior to 2015, to make it relevant to to, to Lincoln, we had uh, three protests by the far right here. Um, initially, they were called the uh, East Anglian Patriots. Uh, so none of them, they weren't from here. Um, the uh, as I said before, we came on. I've got a uh, I've got an old placard in storage here which has a map of East Anglia uh, and then uh, a dot showing where Lincoln is uh, and demonstrating they clearly uh, have no aptitude for geography. Um, we thought it was funny at the time. Um, and uh, so there's no real um, organised far-right movement in, in Lincoln. I'm sure some people locally might, may have joined them, but um, we had three protests. One was in 2013, 14 and 2015 um, and on the I think it's uh, on in the 2013 process there were some uh, what the media sometimes called scuffles um, I remember I was there the uh, the the fash that's because that's that's what they deserve to be called uh, were making their way back uh, along Central Street where they've been allowed to protest uh, in city square. Um, and they were going back to the train station. Some people from our protests went to challenge them. The police formed two lines to basically keep them apart. And then a small group of uh, far-right uh, protesters uh, made their way through, uh, the, uh, through the Cornhill Market and got around the back, and they attacked us from the back, and we beat them back. So uh, that was sort of perhaps red meat for those who wanted to challenge them more directly. Fast forward two years, um, the police were going to, whereas previously they had put the uh, put the far right in City Square, which, to be honest, is a, is a more tucked away part of the city, um, this time they were going to put them on the Cornhill, which is obviously a much more prominent location it's right on the high street you can see it if you're going uh, if you're walking up and down just doing a casual shopping um that's the more visual location um and they were going to allow them to go there and i know that a lot of people were quite upset by this and tried to challenge it so i was one of those people um and i actually volunteered for the police liaison committee um, and uh, the the police pretty much put their foot down and said, well, we won't allow you to counter-protest at all. If you don't agree with this, you have to go to City Square. Um, but by the way, um, we think that the uh, organisers of the other protest have lost faith in it. They, they, we think they're kind of tired of organising this, this whole thing. Um, and we were quite sceptical of that initially, uh, it actually turned out to be true. There haven't been any far-right protests in Lincoln, uh, at least not at once, or well-organised ones uh, since 2015. Um, the local Fash pub was closed down, um, uh, and uh, we seem to have gained a victory. So 
the reason I kind of tell that story um, is that um, although I was sceptical of it at the time, it seems like counter-protest in an organised fashion, albeit in a slightly different location, seems to work. It kind of turned people away from it. Each one of our protests was bigger. Um, in 20, the counter-protests, the anti-fascist protests, uh, 2013, 2014, 2015, uh, each one was bigger. Um, I got local politicians, including the leader of the city council, to come and speak at them. There was a huge amount of legitimacy uh, attached to those. Um, and it seems to me like that seemed to work. All, basically, nearly all of the um, uh, fascist protesters came from outside the city. So that seemed to work. And now we see uh, this weekend that the alternative strategy of just kind of letting them get on with it, um, as uh, as Callum suggested, um, it, it, for now, it, they do look like thugs. They have disgraced themselves quite obviously. But I'm not sure if that is going to work in the long run. Um, Callum, can you can you if if we see more far right protests in the future, should we continue to do the same thing? Should we just sort of allow them to happen? What or perhaps that's a silly question in a way. We shouldn't allow them to just happen. But what what's the best way of challenging them as we go hmm. forward? Do you think? So I, I agree that this tactic of standing off won't work every time. And I think the issue was, in, um, from the perspective of, of Black Lives Matter protesters, was that what we had was a group that were trying to counter-protest that were intent on being violent, intent on being aggressive, and there was no real message behind them apart from protect some statues. Um. When it comes to local protests, I'd start with Lincoln. I think we should absolutely always uh, have a counter protest wherever the right may may stand. I think if they're gonna if they're gonna march in Lincoln, we've always got to be organised and ready to counter protest. Uh, in the national picture, there's other things we can be doing as well as marching where necessary. It's also a case of uh, calling out people for sharing fake news that basically implies things that, that are completely wrong, racist posts, things like that, comments on on um, things like the Lincolnite and other local publications. We you know, we've we've all seen it. We've all seen some of the the absolute hate that's been spewed out by people. So if we challenge them from the comfort of our armchairs and also challenge them on the streets, I think that that's a good tactic uh, for, for us as a movement to be opposing the right. I mean, I, I think the interesting point there w was that in, in a, with your story, it was a very local context in which it worked. Um, I, I think the issue is this idea of a culture war and, and, and how and how politics is being framed by the media at the moment. Um, you know, fueled by these silly things like like getting rid of uh, Come Fly With Me off Netflix or whatever, as if anyone was watching it anyway. Um, it... it I, I think there's a question of optics and I wouldn't really like to say we should always do this or we should always do that. I, I don't think the answer is going to be we should always have a counter-protest or, or we should never have one. I think it depends on the situation. I think in this instance, it's worked quite well. Um, it, it also, don't forget, the, the situation 
this time was actually more the far right counter protesting the Black Lives Matter movement rather than the other way around. Um, it, it, it was more them that were planning a counter protest. Um, so we've sort of outmaneuvered them in that sense. Um, but it, but if the far right are going to sort of be setting up their own proactive protests um, independently of when Black Lives Matter is, are doing their own uh, protest, then yeah, I think we should be having counter protests to that and we should be challenging them on the streets. Okay, that's interesting. So that, that, that kind of segues quite neatly into uh, the next thing we kind of want to talk about, which is this this culture war, as we say. Um, I thought it's funny that you mentioned Come Fly With Me, actually, because obviously that was created by um, Williams and Lucas, who were uh, previously famous for, really still famous, for uh, producing the awful comedy, comedy in, 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 in parentheses, uh, uh, quotation marks rather, um, Little Britain. Which, oh, come on, uh, we, we, have, we have all laughed at Little Britain at times, come on. The, I mean, the, the, there's look. There are funny parts in uh, e- probably in even the most awful comedies. Yeah, <laughs> sure. But I mean, like, I don't know if um, if Callum is old enough to remember, but I remember that all of the worst kids in school, right, were always the ones who are quoting it. Right, you know the 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 um the, if the teacher said something they didn't like, they'd go ah. And computer says no, all of that sort of, and I didn't know what they were saying because I, uh, I wasn't allowed to watch it. <laughs> um, the um, the, you know the 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 it it was I mean that you've got characters who are obviously blacked up in it. There's there's mockery of the female form, um. Obviously, there's uh, the, the classic anti-working class uh, chav, um, Vicky Pollard, who, who you know, bear, and bear in mind that Walliams and, and Lucas were public school boys as well. Um, there's a kind of context there uh, for possible underlying snobbery. I'm not saying that they're bad people because they've since acknowledged that that was wrong. Um but and I'm not just trying to rag on on Little Britain, but that, the the point I was going to make was that actually uh, when Come Fly with Me came out a few years later, which has now obviously been taken off the air, um, they said they were quite surprised because it actually got widespread praise, um, basically because it wasn't Little Britain. Um, it was it was considered ten years ago to be a more sophisticated comedy, if you can if you can imagine that. Um, that it actually got quite good reviews. Um, so I guess that's a, a symbol of, of culture changing, social social attitudes changing. Um, you know, and but the uh, but it is it is kind of it's going to be interesting because uh, the thing about Faulty Towers as well. You know, that's something I remember from my childhood. Um, obviously, many boomers and Gen Xers will have grown up watching, you know, watching that, watching the repeats. So it's it's part of our um, our history. Although I would also note that the offending scene, which is mentioned, where um, where the major uses the N word, um, I actually looked it up on YouTube the other day. I wanted to see the scene, and I watched it, and I thought, I can't actually remember this. I've actually got it on DVD. I haven't looked at it yet. 
but I can't remember it. Someone said that it had been edited by the BBC years ago, so whenever it's repeated on the BBC, the, the scene either isn't there or it's or it's different. Um, and what had happened is that basically Netflix had taken the original cut and just put that on there on their site and that's what had caused the controversy so the most likely thing is that they're just going to re-upload uh the bbc the, the modern bbc version if they had done that quietly then probably no one would have noticed but now there's an attempt to sort of whip everything up uh, as you say into a sort of into a sort of culture war um but is it going to succeed no, no one's calling for this, are they? Yeah, this, these are things that these companies like Netflix have largely done sort of off their own back. Um, and, and maybe it was well-intentioned. You know, maybe there were people, senior figures in Netflix that that were genuinely moved by, by what they've seen in the last few weeks and thought, actually, maybe we've got a responsibility to look at the content we're putting out. Maybe they've been a bit overzealous with that. Um, so I, 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 it's possible it was all well-intentioned, but it, it's primarily been by these companies off their own back. It's not like there's been a... A sustained campaign um, by activist groups to, to get rid of Come Fly With Me off, off Netflix and, and BBC iPlayer. So the, the idea, but but it's it's framed. If you know, if you see, uh, there's a few sort of Brexit loving Facebook groups that I've been part of um, out of interest to see what sort of gets put in there, um, and and it's framed very much as oh, well, what are they going to come for next? And they is you know lefty loonies, all that sort of stuff, but. But actually, this isn't our fault. We've not asked for this. Yeah, um, I, I think I think Bradley's right. I think it's a distraction from the real issues. Systemic racism is a big problem in our society. And people debating about 40 Towers, about Little Britain and all the rest of them, it distracts from the real problems. It distracts from what the Black Lives Matter movement is about. And I think, um, you know, the way... The way society is framed at the moment is is so so much about conflict. It's all about us versus them. You know, I'm right, you're wrong. And the problem with that is, is it means that we can never find anything that people agree on and we can never actually make a positive change because it's always little changes, little compromises to make, you know, the loudest voices happy. When actually, I think what we need to be doing now is looking at ourselves and saying, what is the real problems? Bradley's completely right. We've never, like, there is bigger issues than what is on Netflix, you know. There's loads of crap on Netflix, you know, and that's fine because, it, you know, it's, it's rubbish. But we need to be focusing on those big issues. We need to be challenging systemic racism in our society. We need to be challenging the problems that we have at the very top of our government we need to be looking at exactly what's going on. And I think this is a great distraction from the actual debate that's going on. So you see on the Facebook groups, people talking about Come Fly With Me, talking about Little Britain, but not talking about why George Floyd was murdered by the police. Hmm. Bradley, you want to come back? Yeah, and I think there is actually also, that there is an important difference between... Because the narrative at the moment is, is oh, well, well they're, they're taking down statues of slavers at the moment, but, but what are they going to come for next? And this sort of slippery slope argument of, oh, any challenge of the status quo will inevitably slide into to dystopian dictatorship by the left. Um, but there is, of course, an important difference between statues and TV shows. So 
a TV show is is a part of culture, so culture is inherently up for debate. It's always subjective. You know, if you look at any comedy show, I mean, we've been watching old episodes of Friends, which people love to hate on, and um, but there's lots of problematic things in Friends episodes as well. There, there's sort of uh, sexist and homophobic bits in Friends episodes, which at the time, you know, when they aired in in the mid '90s, would have been seen as completely unproblematic by by most people that watched it. Um, but now you watch it now, you know, there's episodes I cringe at. And I'm like, that's really actually problematic what, what they've done there in that episode. Um, but I'm sure it's true of most comedy shows that, that you watch. And comedy always is a bit on the edge, isn't it? It's, it's always supposed to, to sort of be that way. But it's always up for debate as well. People will critique TV shows. If, if an episode comes out, you will have critics that review it. You will have ordinary people that will look at it and, and challenge parts of it and, and ha- express their opinion on it. You don't really have that with a statue. A statue is sort of just there. You know, you don't you don't really have a, a newspaper columns on on uh, what people think about a certain statue that's been sitting there for a hundred years. A statue is sort of supposed to, by its presence, the suggestion of it is that it in some way reflects what the, that community that live near it, um, it in some way reflects their views or, or their values or, or, or in some way or another. But it's not really debated. You don't really see statues debated a, until now. So I think there is quite an important difference in terms of culture, in terms of what a statue represents and what a TV show is. So for me, it makes quite a lot of sense to tear down a TV statue, but not necessarily to cancel a TV show. Yeah, I think I think that uh, I think that's right. I think Callum's right as well. We should be uh, keeping the focus really on the on the structural racism of of the police uh, in the US and here. Um, and uh, how we can resolve that, how we can think, as we were talking about last week, uh, think about alternative methods of, of public order. Uh, something to mention as well, I don't, uh, um, don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a whole uh, precinct uh, in, uh, in northwestern America. I can't remember if it's um, Oregon or uh, Seattle. Thank you. My, my missus has corrected me. Um, Seattle, where the police basically said, OK, well, you don't want us. So they 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 left. They sort of went on strike almost. And so the community has moved in. And guess what? They're fine. To be fair, they're only a week or two in. Nothing. But nothing's nothing's happened that they've got their equivalent of sort of self-help groups they're handing out food you know apparently it's like a festival atmosphere we'll see how that progresses um obviously we've got the uh we've got the the the, uh, city of minneapolis which is considering alternative means of public order as well um so it's a really interesting time um for that sort of thing we could have a healthy conversation about how um how we organize our society um, and I think that the media and the establishment and the, the political establishment are doing everything that they can to try and steer the conversation away to distract us with with debates about uh, pop culture and, and media. Um, so we're going to try and keep the we're going to try and keep the focus on that. It'd be interesting to see how it develops, and also to sort of distract attention, I'm sure, away from. Uh, their own incompetence uh, in the short term, which is what this government and people like Trump uh, enjoy doing the most, is distracting attention away from themselves and their own failings. Um, Speaking of failings, um, several weeks ago, we were promised the start of the test and trace. 
scheme, if you like, to actually start working out where the hell this, who has actually been infected by COVID-19 um, and where it was going, who had the antibodies and, and so on. I'm not a scientist, you can probably tell, um, but it seems pretty basic to me that we should have been doing this from the beginning, uh, i.e. three or four months ago. Um, and we only started doing it, uh, started even saying that we were going to test and trace in May, and the plan is still not in progress. Who wants to lead on this? I'll, I'll, I'll take this. Um, so they trialed, if you remember rightly, they trialed the test and trace app in the Isle of Wight. Um, an interesting location to choose because it's not very densely packed, um, only small towns. Um, contained on, on on an island off the south coast of of england it's all it's but, funny really isn't it <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a strange place it really is a strange place to to start the test um so test and trace launched to much fanfare um hancock and johnson speaking of it almost every press conference for weeks and suddenly the app is nowhere to be seen. When asked about it, they say it's still a work in progress and we can't expect it until August or September, apparently, to be fully operational countrywide. So where this app has gone, we don't know. But what I do know is that the development of the app, the rolling out of the app was put in the hands of the private sector. Now, the, the whole test trace and a response to COVID, we've seen it in other countries work brilliantly. In Korea, they were really on it. They've uh, since lifted many of their lockdown measures. So what I, what I really struggled to see is how can what is apparently a very, com well, seem to be a competent civil service and a competent government so badly messed up if other countries around the world can do a good job i mean it's 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 astounding because you've got places like vietnam you know completely different sort of economic system and 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 governmental structure and then you've got the other end of the scale you have got korea south korea sorry so i i, I really don't know what's gone wrong but all i can say is that it's 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 clearly down to this government they the buck stops with them it's their fault something's gone wrong this app is is flawed this app has failed to be launched and we're still easing lockdown we're still easing lockdown despite there being no measures to to test to track to trace and to prevent the spread of covid and meanwhile the r rate is going to be going through the roof bradley well for those listening that are playing uh, podcast 1201 bingo i am going to make my weekly mention of neoliberalism at this point um, oh, that's that's a house for me. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's obvious, isn't it? We've we've shipped out all various aspects of our coronavirus response to, to private companies, from from PPE to to the test and trace app, um, and it, it amazingly, market providers are not the the bastions of efficiency that we've been told they are for forty years. Um, the, I, I am very, I'm really worried. You know, some of the, some of the reports come out. I think the Independent ran a story. Um, over the weekend about how our values in I think the, the phrasing was all regions of the UK um, or certainly England um, are on are on the brink of, of going over one um, at which point we can't contain the virus and and that's before shops are opening so so I mean we, we've just been on a walk 
and our fish were out of food, so we had to go on a walk to get our fish some food. Um, and we, you can see the preparations today outside Primark on the high street. And staff are gathered there. They're about to go in. I don't know what they're doing. Um, maybe some sort of training for health and safety for when they open. But you can see all the shops on the high street have got their preparations in place to open this week. Um, you know, the sort of um, queue distancing outside the shop marked on the floor and all that sort of stuff. So our, our values are on the brink now. And shops are going to be opening this week. What's that going to do to the R value? I, I don't see how it can't increase it to over one. And at that point, how do we not get a second wave of infections and deaths? Um, but the question then is, what's the government thinking? Because there's no way that doesn't result in a public backlash that, and, and potentially a second lockdown, which will increase a public backlash. So uh, open question to, to my uh, to my fellow podcasters, what what is the government thinking? What's its plan to deal with this? Because I don't see how we don't get a second wave. I, I think it's basically obvious how we got to this point. Just to do something quite unusual, I'm actually going to defend the private sector a little bit here because um, at the beginning of this crisis, there were quite a lot of um, private sector um, developers who um, created tests for COVID. Now, we don't know if they were accurate, if they're going to work, because the government appeared to have no interest in actually getting them tested to see if they did work and then distributing them. They were just ignored, right? Um, so, so much for sort of innovation. Um, in retrospect, I think we can probably see that the, the mistake that these private companies have clearly made, uh, which is not to be best mates with Boris Johnson. Um, because of course the, the the head of the test and trace uh, scheme now is a is a is a Tory peer. It just happens to be a Tory peer, you know. Um, uh, she ha- I think she has a, a, a string of business failures behind her, which I think is a prerequisite for being a top Tory these days. Um, and uh, she is the head of the uh, of the test and trace scheme, which is now failing. Um, so I think it's pretty clear this uh, you can have sort of uh, private sector innovation, but only if if it's if it's your mates. Um, we used to in this country be considered one of the least corrupt in the world or at least the least overtly corrupt in the world. Um, but now I think I think we're probably one of the most uh, almost openly corrupt because you can only succeed in business if you have these connections to politicians who should know better and this is coming to bite us in the arse in terms of our health care as well these spivs are now in charge of our health care they have been for 10 years they've completely destroyed our nhs um and they are killing us uh, with their cronyism now uh, that that would be that would be my assessment my answer to that question bradley i don't know if callum has other thoughts yeah, I, I, I think that my, my, my gut instinct is that, um, is that the reason why they don't really seem to be caring that the uh, test track and trace system is working, why this isn't work, why this isn't working, and we're still plowing on with uh, lifting lockdown measures, is purely because they care about the economy more than they care about people. It's fundamentally an ideological trait of theirs is that if the economy takes a hit then people must take a hit too and it'll be a bigger hit 
for the sake of saving businesses, for the sake of saving um, saving st- um, shareholders and people that own the big companies. Not prepared, not prepared to look after the little guy when we're struggling, but when the big guys are struggling, they'll be there for them. And I think that ultimately it does come back to this herd immunity that was floated at the start of the pandemic. The the government was very clear. They they said it in a number of press conferences that they were going to push on with this tactic, this this way of tackling the pandemic. Now, I don't think it, it was going to work, and I think we all agree that it, it's never going to work that way. But it seems to be that they're trying it again. They, they seem to be sacrificing normal working people for the sake of the economy, for the sake of herd immunity, instead of waiting till we get proper measures in place to test, track and trace and eventually get a vaccine. So I think it, it is a case of sacrificing people for their bigger picture or what they seem to be is the bigger picture. But I, it, it's astounding. We know it's, we've known it for years. It's an ideological trait, but it's still every time they sacrifice people in the name of profit, it's, it just makes me angry. Hmm. I mean, they say it's for the, for the benefit of the economy, but um, they have been, this, the, the Tory party champions itself as the party of, of sort of small businesses, people who want to get on, people who are, you know, self-employed and whatever. Self-employed people were the first people that they shafted right at the beginning of this crisis. They introduced the furlough scheme because they basically had to, but they found excuses to, to make things difficult for people who are self, self-employed. Um, they delayed uh, um, pet making payouts, I think, until the beginning of June, um, that they made the the stipulations of who could receive that money quite tight. Really, we talked about they should have introduced universal basic income, which would have been the logical uh, uh, and caring thing to do. But this government is neither logical nor caring. Um, and uh, I th- is there potential here, Bradley, uh, for? this to be quite dangerous for uh, the Conservative Party in the long run, and indeed the establishment in general, because historically what, 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 um, what we see is that, you know, the, and not to be too cynical, but like the peasants can protest all they like, right? But until, you start, until the, the, the middle classes... Uh, in, and the people in the towns, if you like, start being negatively affected. You won't necessarily have seismic change. But now the Conservative Party are attacking the very sort of petty bourgeois that uh, you know Marx predicted and others predicted would ultimately, in due course, find their interests more closely aligned with the working class than that with the big big business and the and the establishment. Um, is there is there a risk for them that that's what we're seeing, um, and is it possible that that we could that we could challenge uh, channel that uh, you know, on the left? Well, I I think you know the, the handling of the Corona crisis is, is only one of, of many um, colossal shit shows that, that are heading that are going to bear fruit in in the near future. So you know we, we look at Brexit. I was reading an article today about. Um, by George Monbiot on you know this whole chlorinated chicken saga, 
um, and, and the trade deals were likely to end up being lumped with from the US. Um, so as Brexit begins to bear fruit, we're going to be talking about universities later as well, and the impacts on universities of Brexit is going to be going to be disastrous potentially. Um, but but also you know a, a decade of austerity um, and the damage that's done partly evidenced in the Corona crisis. Um, so and obviously things like climate change as well, which the Tory Party has historically blocked progress on. So I think there's, there's an awful lot of things coming going to come to a head in the next few years. Um, that, that the Conservatives are going to potentially lose an awful lot of political capital over. Immediately with this issue, um, with, with the potential of, of us having a second wave, which I don't see how we can avoid at this point, there really is a question of strategically what, what is their plan? Because they, they must know that. They must know that their actions will lead to a second wave. Um, and I, I, I can only really see, to if you accept the, 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 the suggestion that there's going to be a second wave with, with the changes they've brought about to lockdown, there's only really two ways you can get around that. Um, one is to to fudge the data, so to try and cover up the fact that there is a second wave, um, which I think would take an enormous amount of effort and corruption. <laughs> maybe maybe they're capable of that, I don't know. Um, the other is to tie it into this growing idea of a culture war. Um, so we, we've already seen a little bit of it, haven't we? In a, you know, This idea that people that are hesitant to go back to work, the people that want to stay working from home, um, Actually, that these people are shirkers, um, you know, very similar to rhetoric you saw around the, the austerity debates over the last decade. Um, you, you can see the sort of people that are against the Black Lives Matter movement on Facebook. They're the same sort of people that are probably likely to be saying Boris has done a great job during the coronavirus crisis. So uh, I think there's a possibility that the uh, disagreements over the government's response to coronavirus crisis and, and how we apportion blame for the deaths that are coming our way that that gets tied into a broader culture war and um, that the Conservatives will milk for everything they've got. Um, you know, you talk about the middle class. Yes, there, there are the wealthy, the well-off and, and the sort of doing OKs that the Tories have historically relied on. If you look the jams, at that, if you, as Theresa May put it. Sorry? The jams, as uh, Theresa May put it, just about managing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but actually, increasingly, Boris is tapping into a certain strand of working class thought as well. Um, if you look at some of these people protesting in London um, over the weekend, um, a, a lot of not all of them, but a lot of them love Boris Johnson. I, I think he's the Messiah. Uh, you know, they th- think he's doing a great job. He's getting us out of Europe. He's got the job done. Um, so I, I think Brexit, as long as as well as just the, the insanity of what our politics is at the moment, has has changed the class structure of voting a bit. I don't think it's completely abandoned. I don't think, you know, I don't think the working class has completely abandoned Labour or anything like that. But I, I think that Boris is perhaps able to take a few more risks with who he annoys um, than, he, than perhaps the Tory party historically has been able to do. Hmm. I, I've just been handed some um, slightly disturbing news. Apparently, um, uh, a couple of black men have been found uh, hanging from trees in California. Um, um one of them was uh, found in front of City Hall. Um, the police have labelled them as suicides. Um, there was also, uh, I think, a, a woman who was similarly possibly lynched. Well, she was stabbed, so she was clearly murdered um, in 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 um, in South Africa as well uh, the other day. So. There is a, there's a there's a rising risk of violence 
Um, one, the only comfort maybe we can possibly take from uh, from this weekend is that the people who are willing to go out and, and cause the most damage perhaps are a minority, but um, it only takes a, a couple of thugs to kill someone, I guess. Um, so... Uh, that was that was slightly harrow, harrowing to receive, um, but as I, I say, I think just sort of saying positive. Last weekend, we saw possibly millions of people come out on the streets uh, in support of Black Lives Matter, just in this country and many, many, many more uh, in the United States of America. Um, and these, I think, these people are are in the minority, and I think. I think, broadly speaking, we are winning. I think that the, uh, as bad as it sounds, I, I think people are starting to turn against the far right. Like the, the zeitgeist is definitely with us, despite the attempts by the media to distract us, as we've discussed. Um, I think that I, I think that the people, the people are with us. How it will play out in the long run, who, who knows? Um, we're going to go on to our, our last item, uh, of course. Um, someday all of this is going to have to be chronicled, analysed, discussed, debated until 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 the sun consumes the planet. Um, uh, and this will all be done in, in the halls uh, of, of education, our great universities. Um, but of course, they are also under threat from the present pandemic, um, and we want to discuss how uh, the how universities are coping with that, and how they are going to change uh, as as a result of this. Who wants to lead on this item, Bradley? I assume this was Callum's article, actually. Was it? Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, go on then, Callum. Uh, yeah. Um, so. I think sort of kicking off the debate really it's 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 looking at how universities are really quite struggling with the current situation that they find themselves in and that really that the issue lies not in coronavirus but in how they're funded in how they're organized and what and the fact that they rely so much on the tuition fees so ever since we've had the tuition fees coming the, uh, the universities increasingly are looking to market themselves. They're looking to build these new flashy buildings, not because it might aid the research that they're doing, but it's because it gives them more classroom space. It gives them more capacity. And a number of universities, Lincoln included, have spent hundreds of millions of pounds on these projects. And there's a number of them where they've now had to cancel those projects halfway through construction. Uh, one of the Sheffield universities has cancelled its new building halfway through and it's just going to be demolished. A half-built construction is going to be demolished because the money's run out. Now, you mentioned earlier about Brexit. Uh, Brexit will be impacting universities as well. They make more money from international students, as in individually, than they do from uh, students from the United Kingdom. So they can charge a higher rate. They can also... uh, they can make a lot of money on the accommodation. So they would have longer terms than many other students. But I think the thing we've also got to look at is that 
COVID-19 is going to put off international students coming to Britain, especially the way we're handling it. If it gets around to October, September, October time, and we're still in the grips of this pandemic, people aren't going to want to come here. And it's the same for a number of students that are also from the United Kingdom, the people that would um, would be looking to go into their first year, their second year, their third year. They're looking to defer now because they don't want to be learning online. And the question is, how badly is this going to impact universities? Now, there was this article that I've, I, I was reading. It, it said, I'll, I'll, I'll look at Lincoln as, as an example, keeping it local. Um, they're going to lose around 8% income, which is a huge amount of money. And they're going to lose 4% from renting out of, of things like lecture rooms um, and things like that. But it goes beyond that because in those numbers, it doesn't take into account some more essential student services like the students' unions. Now, we know for a fact that a lot of students' unions have furloughed almost all their staff and they're left basically with no income whatsoever. They make a lot of their money from alcohol sales. They make a lot of their money from food sales and events. No events are going to be going on for a very, very long time. So they're going to be missing out. So now where does that leave universities? Where does that leave the whole system? And I think we're going to have to rethink how we look at our universities, how we fund them, how they're structured, and they should be supported by the government and they should be given that money regardless. And then we can lower the tuition fees and they can less rely on having to sell themselves and market themselves. Yeah, I mean, this this was always going to happen. You know, I was reading articles um, before Christmas that were talking about a, a growing bubble in in HE, um, in terms of, of the, the the shift towards a marketized system, um, but also you know this rapid sort of almost like arms race between buildings and and and, and all sorts of things. You know, luxury student accommodation and all this sorts of sort of stuff. Um, it's sort of an arms race of who who can provide the the, the better sort of. Uh, experience to, to students that's often quite detached from their actual learning experience and um, so, so a, a bubble and a crash within the HE sector has been coming for a, for a long time so, since the, the tripling of fees really and, and the shift towards a more aggressively marketized sector and um, so it's been coming for a while um, I suppose what coronavirus has done is, is make it come a bit quicker than it might have done otherwise I think some sort of shock w- would have sent ripples throughout the sector at some point anyway um, but but coronavirus has perhaps done it in a in a more drastic way and, and, and quicker than it might have done otherwise. Um, all, and the fact that it's happening on the back of Brexit as well um, is a double whammy for the sector. I think it highlights the need uh, well-equipped, uh, well-versed students unions that are able to push back because there's going to be cuts left, right, and centre now in, in across, particularly the Russell groups. I think and the, and the higher end universities. Um, that there's going to be cuts. Mo- mo- I mean, it's already happened to, to casualise staff. So that there's a massive issue of, of, of casualised casualised labour within the higher education sector. They're going to be the people that lose out the most. They're going to be early career researchers. Um, a lot of them will be PhD students, so they'll still actually be students as well. So there's a duty of care there from students unions. Um, it it highlights the need for students unions to to mobilise against it. Um, my worry is that a lot of those students unions aren't in a position to do so. Um, because they they don't have an institutional understanding of how to apply pressure to the university properly in the way that they should, 
so they're going to have to very rapidly learn some skills and you, you know you, you talk about the loss of income for students unions in terms of bar sales actually lincoln does pretty well commercially and um, it's quite rare and um, for a student union to have such expansive commercial um systems that actually generate the amount of profit that lincoln's usually do and um, a lot of unions are actually dependent on university block grants now there's certain there's certain legal requirements for the universities to fund students unions but that only goes so far. Often unions will have got additional funding or negotiated increases to their block grant above and beyond what legal requirements there are. Um, so the question then becomes, are students unions themselves going to face um, threats to their, to their block grants and their funding from their partner institutions? Um, and and how, does, how do students unions, how do students as a, as a movement mobilise against that is the question for the next few months, I think. I think it's... Um... I know you mentioned that it's the Russell Group universities that are most at threat, um, but I think it's also an open secret at this point that, that Lincoln, the university, was bailed out by the government a couple of years ago. Um, so I think the finances of newer universities are clearly uh, sort of under threat as well. Uh, it all does contrast quite sharply with my experience when I first came to, to university when we had car parks full of uh, porter cabins uh, because universities had taken on too many students. Certainly Lincoln had taken on too many students, uh, a bit enough more than it could swallow because that was the last year of tuition fees. So there had been a sudden last-minute rush for applications and for whatever reason... Um, Lincoln clearly couldn't manage that. Um, the empty buildings that are halfway through progress is very reminiscent in a way of uh, the financial crash from 12 years ago uh, when there were lots of uh, houses being built and holiday camps and things like that. And then all of a sudden it all stopped uh, very suddenly. So we could end up with... Uh, more visions maybe of uh, of empty building sites uh, as sort of monuments to this uh, to, to this event. Bradley's very succinctly put what um, students unions uh, should be doing as he usually does. <laughs> I don't I don't know how to take that. I don't know if that was <laughs> no no it was complimentary. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to say you know what you're talking about. That's that's what that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I suppose it's not really. We don't we don't really know what's going to happen to universities at this point, do we? It will be what happens to admissions. I think the summer that will give us an indication. Um, so there's all sorts of suspicions of how many home students will choose to defer, um, or those that are, for, are going into their first year choose just not to go to university. Um, the really big question, like Callum said, is is around what international students choose to do as well. Um, so obviously, the midst of a pandemic is not a great time to choose to study internationally. Um, but but also the article that Callum linked to mentions that um, a, a lot of international students are particularly looking at how the UK has handled the coronavirus crisis, and that is, has made them less likely to want to go to the UK to study as well because of how poorly the pandemic's been handled here. So what at the moment, all of that is guesswork. You know, there's sort of estimates of how many international students will actually come this year, estimates of how many home students will defer entry, all that sort of stuff. Um, it won't really be until later on in the summer when those estimates begin to turn into actual statistics that we will really know what's going on. Hmm. It, just occur- it just occurred to me as well, if, um, if universities start to fail, which they could do, 
the 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 scenario you just laid out is pretty bleak. Um, the fallback for Lincoln, uh, famously when they were building it, uh, building our university back in the late nineties, was that you could convert the building into a shopping mall if it failed. Um, Which but is why course, we're building. But that was yes, but that was before the days of Amazon. So even that plan might not work now. Yeah. So COVID has certainly, I mean, to be fair, shopping malls were sort of going out of fashion anyway, weren't they? Um, but uh, uh, yeah, COVID really has uh, changed the world, um, shall we say. Uh, maybe finished off some things which um, which needed to be finished off. Um we, we could say, if we wanted to end in a dramatic way, we could say that it is, it is heightened the crisis that is late-stage capitalism. Yeah, that's a good way to finish. <laughs> it's, it certainly put us into our final third act, maybe. Um, uh, but uh, we just have to remain vigilant, as I said earlier. Uh, I think there's an appetite for, for change in the air. I, th- I think that... Uh, you don't see major change when things are stable. Um, and as horrible as this crisis is, um, if you want to be optimistic, uh, don't imagine that things will go back to normal. Imagine things that will be better and try and will make them happen. Uh, so on that note, I think uh, we'll end it there. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we will try to be back next week as usual. Uh, but for now it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Bradley yeah bye folks thanks for listening and it's goodbye from Calum cheers as always everyone stay safe stay safe and we'll see you next time